Bloom was one of those projects where, you know, materials that we use just create a beautiful, rich landscape, um, but he wasn't using concrete or sort of expressive steel and those sort of things. There is a trade-off between robustness and low embodied energy. We assembled a team to really sort of try to bring some interesting ideas to this around the ideas of color, uh, seasonality, biodiversity, and, you know, just high drama, really. Of all the benefits of urban street tree planting, of which there are many, carbon sequestration is not one of them. You're listening to Talking Landscape, a podcast which explores the big issues in placemaking, nature and the environment through conversations with leading landscape architects. I'm your host, Paul Lincoln, editor of Landscape, the journal on which this podcast is based. In this episode, we're looking at the importance of materials as we think about how we use design to tackle the climate emergency. Joining me today are Andrew Grant and Jay Warrior. Jay is a landscape architect at Allies and Morrison, and in this edition of Landscape, he posed the question, are street trees worth their weight in carbon? More about that later. Andrew is director of Grant Associates, the landscape practice he founded in 1997. And in the previous edition of Landscape, he wrote about the challenges faced by the profession in tackling climate emergency. In this edition, he writes about a major project in the heart of the capital. First, I wanted to ask you both, why did you choose to become a landscape architect and how did that happen? So Andrew, can I start with you? I grew up on a farm in, in East Yorkshire and I was really interested in nature and art and architecture, interestingly. And when I thought about what do I want to go and study, I, my first course was, was architecture. I thought I'm going to study that, but actually um, I didn't have the right qualifications to go to the right universities. So the one that popped out with, with a mix of biology and art was landscape architecture and at the time it was um, Harry Watt University and Edinburgh College of Art in, in Edinburgh and I went there and I thought what an amazing place and that just launched me into the world of landscape architecture in, an, in a really spectacular way. Brilliant, thank you. Jay, tell us a bit about what, what led you to this profession. Um, so I grew up on the opposite of a farm. I grew up in New Delhi surrounded by various different textures of concrete um, Darmac. Um, but I think my childhood memories, best childhood memories were always in some small park somewhere. I originally trained to be an architect and I worked as an architect for two or three years. But while doing that, I, I came to realize that what I really enjoyed doing was the spaces around buildings and between buildings. And eventually I transitioned, uh, and retrained to become a landscape architect. So with both of you, a very interesting engagement with architecture and a career based now on landscape design, landscape architecture. So let's focus on the current edition of the journal. Um, Andrew, I'd like to start by delving into your article. Um, last summer, your practice worked on an exceptional project right in the heart of London. Tell us a bit about it. Yeah, so this was Superbloom at the Tower of London, uh, where we helped transform the moat into a immersive visitor experience based around the experience of flowers um, and 
It came about because the Historic Royal Palaces wanted to have some celebratory event around the Queen's Platinum Jubilee. And after a lot of um, processing, basically there's a limited competition. Uh, we were invited to come forward with some ideas and, and we assembled a team to really sort of try to bring some interesting ideas to this around the ideas of colour, uh, seasonality, biodiversity, and, you know, just high drama, really. The, the precedents had been set within the moats with the, the poppies and, and the flames previously. So, so what we could do with living material to um, echo that. And it was an extraordinary journey. As you can imagine, there was all sorts of aspirations from the, from the client group. It was, had to be more than just a walk through a sea of flowers. It had to have interventions that were a bit more joyful and make people stop and think about what was going on. And, you know, the physical context, this, this massive space dominated by this ancient sort of um, fortification and the, this sort of big linear moat that wraps around it. Um, it's quite challenging in, in, in many respects. I got to visit the site very early on, just as I think you've done some of the planting. It was a freezing day. And the thing that really struck me was, as you said, the, the, the hardness of the materials of the Tower of London. We appeared to be in a wind tunnel. And on the other side, there was a motorway and, well, and the river. So in, in some ways, quite a, a, an unpleasant setting. And tell us about some of the aspects that you might not have expected to have to deal with, particularly in terms of wind and rock and, and concrete. Yes, absolutely. Well, we learned an awful lot about the site. N not only its incredible history of, of, and how the moat had transformed through, you know, hundreds of years, uh, and it was drained in 1845. So it hadn't changed since that date. It had been basically a grass uh, field with occasional interventions and structures. And during the war, there were some allotments in there, but essentially it was this very barren environment. And we appreciated, you know, there were going to be some different microclimate effects, basically north, south, east, west, and, you know, shade and shadow. But what we hadn't fully recognised is actually the, the effects of wind whistling off the Thames and coming down the west moat, which is the main sort of feature of the uh, Tower of London moat, uh, when most visitors look into it. Um, and that's what caught us out a little bit in the early stages of the... Um, germination and and sort of evolution of the of the flowers um in that it was very cold it was very dry and it sort of just delayed the the ultimate sort of spectacle <laughs> and and created some so interesting challenges for us in terms of how do we how do we restore and enhance and and you know make the the best show that we possibly can it's a very significant site it's a world heritage site it's a scheduled ancient monument on top of that, the summer of 2022 was one of the hottest and driest on record. Not good for planting, I imagine. So go over some of the constraints, uh, particularly also working on what I assume is, is basically an archaeological site. Yes, I mean, the challenges were from the ground up. Um, because it's a very sensitive archaeological context, uh, we couldn't do any interventions into the ground deeper than 300 millimetres. And in, in certain areas, it was 150 millimetres uh, because of the, you know, interesting remains that beneath that. And but did you have to put basically a huge layer of soil just on top of what was there? Yeah, well, that quickly transpired as to, to be the, the only real solution that we, we had. The existing soil was a real mix of depths and context, and it was full of 
weed species. So we didn't want that to impact on the, the final display. So the proposal was made to actually bring in uh, a, a layer of engineered soil specified by Tim O'Hare and, and Nigel Dunnett, who were our support team really to, to make it work and to lay that over the whole of the moat and in certain areas to create some bit of topography, a bit of variety in terms of the height of the mound so that as you walk through, there was a bit more sort of spatial experience. Um, so yes, just that idea of 10,000 cubic meters of soil having to be transported and laid within the, the site and all put in place, beautifully leveled and, and layered by the end of March, just so that we could actually get the seeding in and get the germination started. That was a massive challenge. And just to make it even more demanding, your your client, who were historic royal palaces, wanted to deliver both a climate and a biodiversity responsive project. Um, and that's, as I said earlier, that's a topic that you have written about at great length. And um, so how did their requirement and your expertise in this area come together? Yes, I mean, I think they obviously manage a number of amazing places around the UK. And they're looking to how can they reimagine some of the historic amenity grassland areas that they've got associated with these, these areas and how can they make them more resilient. Um, and in this instance, the idea of transforming a, a quite a barren and sort of mound grassland world into something that had full was full of life is, you know, can we get birds, can we get insects, can we really start to to showcase what you could do very simply by just putting in seeds onto a soil mix and, you know, over the summer, you know, just see what happens. So yes, there was a, a really interesting story there. What's interesting is that this was just the beginning, really, of a journey that the historical palaces are on for the Tower of London. In that the Super Blue event was literally just for the summer of, of 2022. It's going to basically repeat itself this year um, because it's basically just self-seeded. Uh, we're going to have a repeat in some form of, of what you saw last summer. But going forward, we're starting to, to look with the historic royal palaces to what could the future long-term legacy of this be in the moat, which addresses water in terms of drought and, and stormwater attenuation and potential flooding from the Thames. How do we address um, biodiversity in this part of London, Tower Hamlets, and how does it plug into the wider networks of ecological corridors? And importantly, how do we retain its sense of defensive landscape? You know, it's a really fundamental requirement of historic England in terms of... What, what, what do you mean by a defensive landscape in this case? Well, through history, it's been this sense of defensive um, infrastructure around the tower itself, in a way stopping people getting at the crown jewels and whatever else is in the in the tower and uh, surveillance and all those sort of things. And so, very symbolic as a as a piece of of landscape. So, how do we how do we do something that that doesn't diminish that? And in addition to that, basically, how do we make it look beautiful and spectacular so that people want to go into it. The visitors to the tower want to go in and explore that. It's an extra attraction. And how do we make it so that it feels like it's enriching the people of London when they're walking past around the edges and they look walking along the the, the, the wharf and around the, the, the top edges that look, look in and see something that's really quite different and 
sets an example of, of how we can change urban green space into something that is much more diverse in terms of its value. And um, one thing you made reference to was the fact that a couple of years ago, there was an installation of, I think there were ceramic red poppies. Um, obviously, you are doing something which is about organic natural landscape, but to what extent did that choice of color have an influence on your thinking about color and planting uh, for your scheme? This is where I need to big up uh, Nigel Dunnett, who's a professor of planting design at University of Sheffield and, and clearly has a, a reputation for, for creating these amazing uh, floral installations in different parts of the world, not least at the um, Olympic Park during, during the Olympics. So we've worked with Nigel for many years and you know just bringing his knowledge of how to sort of create seed mixes that are not only going to sort of create um, floral effects over a period of time through a su succession of different species, but also work with the colors so that you can start to really get a really interesting effect. Uh, we, 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 we sort of honed in on Monet and Impressionist sort of uh, qualities, I guess, of, of how we could do this. So rather than big blocks of single colors, it was going to be a much more subtle variety that would change as you went around the moat. So there's slightly different qualities and colorful effects that, that worked around the moat and at different times of the of the year. We use a lot of cornflowers because that, you know we just thought at one moment or if we can find a way of trying to sort of get a sort of a watery sort of vibe that came through, that was that was you know one of the other sort of thoughts that we had. Brilliant, thank you. Um, and we'll just move on now, now to Jay. Um, one of the ways which is often touted as an appropriate response to the climate crisis is to plant more trees. Jay, you decided to investigate this claim yourself in the article. Um, what was your inspiration for the approach that you took? Well, I think I was always slightly suspicious of this idea that planting more and more urban trees will solve the problem or even make a dent in carbon emissions and so by sequestering them. Um, and then I came across this uh, article in the New York Times early last year about cotton dirt bags, uh, which you know, a friend sent to me uh, with a sort of smiley emoji saying, no, nothing is sustainable. And I read that article and it, it was a pretty um, eye-opening article which which explained why cotton dough bags are highly unsustainable and this is because of all the water that goes into the cotton crop and the fact that a lot of dirt bags are branded and they use they use chemicals to paint them and as a result this makes them uh, impossible to recycle and i thought well if even that isn't sustainable then you know, what what else is not as sustainable as it looks. And I had done a lot of urban tree planting in my career. Uh, I'd done a lot of details, a lot of drawings showing what goes into the underground infrastructure for an urban tree. And even before I did the calculations, I, I mean, I was pretty sure that you're probably emitting more carbon than the tree can possibly sequester in its uh, lifetime. So then it was just a question of finding and this was the most difficult bit, actually finding the figures that told us um, 
how much carbon is emitted in those products that go underground. Like that was the hardest part. So tell us what are the factors you we need to consider when calculating the carbon footprint of an urban tree? The carbon emissions start the moment you put a spade in the ground, really. Um, the moment you're digging a tree bed, you've, you've started emitting carbon. Um, then there's all the the paraphernalia that goes into the tree bed. You, know, you have the gravel, you have the geosynthetic textiles, you have the plastic soil cells. Then you have the tree that needs to be transported from a nursery somewhere and put in the ground. All the vehicles using petrol or diesel that will carry the tree over. And for most of these uh, items, you don't have the necessary information to do uh, detailed calculations. So I focus my article on specifically the plastic soil cells for which this information is available. And the outcome was that just the carbon emitted in the production of those soil cells is so great that even a large urban tree like a London plain will take over 150 years to sequester that amount of carbon, which is an unsustainable situation, quite literally. You just cannot keep planting urban trees like that and expect carbon emissions to go down. You're actually increasing carbon emissions by planting urban street trees. And do you think there's a distinction between an urban street tree planted adjacent to the highway and an urban tree, say, in a plant, in, 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 a, in a park setting? Well, absolutely. I mean, there's difference of uh, how much infrastructure is required on the ground. I mean, you still need stakes, you still need uh, gravel, you need, you, know, you need things like that, but uh, you don't need the plastic soil cells, you possibly don't need to pave over the tree pit, you don't need a tree drill, you know, so all these things that require carbon emissions are then excluded. So that would be the ideal situation, but it's not a very commonly found situation. Like street trees uh, are just very difficult to plant in soft beds. There's just not enough space. So you do have to use plastic soil. So, and I should clarify here that the purpose of the article was not to discourage people from planting street trees. It was just to point out that of all the benefits of urban street tree planting, of which there are many, um, carbon sequestration is not one of them. Do you want to just just to summarize the, the other benefits of street tree planting? So the main advantages of um, street tree planting are uh, improved biodiversity, improved microclimate, they provide shade, they provide pleasure to residents of urban areas and they encourage people to spend more time outdoors. And I think these benefits far outweigh the uh, the, the the negative impact that they have by uh, emitting carbon. But I should also point out that we can also look at offsetting the carbon emitted by street tree planting, by planting trees elsewhere. Um, and so not only do you get the benefits of street trees in urban areas, you can uh, mitigate the negative impact of carbon emissions elsewhere. So uh, that's kind of a win-win. Okay, well, that's really helpful. Now. If we go back to the article, Andrew, that you wrote um, a couple of years ago in our edition about COP26 and how we move towards net zero, I suppose 
my sense is that landscape architects are clearly in a very good position to recommend to their clients the most sensible way of tackling both climate emergency and biodiversity loss. Um, can I ask you both to what extent the local authorities that you're dealing with, the clients that you're dealing with, are able to to make this kind of informed decision about something like uh, where to plant a street tree or what choices to make generally in terms of commissioning and landscape scheme. What are your thoughts on that, Andrew? There's a lot of things evolving over the last few years. And in London, we have things like the urban greening factor to respond to bird biodiversity net gain, um, more requirements for sustainable urban drainage, uh, which are you know basically part of the armory, I guess, of, of landscape architects and, and um, people working in that the environment, uh, which is giving us more persuasive sort of powers to talk to, to clients. And this is, you know, if you want planning permission for this, you're going to have to go through a certain process and you're going to have to deliver certain things, which is great. Um, and clearly, you know, there's lots of challenges that come with that as well, because you know, there's a big debate at the moment in our office about podium planting in the UK, where basically you have to strengthen your structure uh, in creating, you know, increased carbon footprint for the structure of the building to sustain a green space. So what what are the trades off? And, and, and like Jay's street tree analogy, I think ultimately we need to sort of create green and more beautiful, more biodiverse environments within the cities just to sort of help us as be um, happier and, and create a sort of more livable environment. Otherwise, it just gets very hard, very dense and not terribly pleasant. So, but we're all on a journey, I think. I mean, as Jay said, basically, if you really home in on everything at the moment, nothing is truly sustainable in the way we deliver projects because of the way the commercial world is set up, because of the way development is procured, because of the way the planning systems work and government policy works. We're, we're, we're finding our way through a sort of labyrinth of, of, of very complicated issues. So again, the same question to you, Jay. How, how do you weigh up the long-term benefits of a project against its initial carbon costs? And how do you discuss this with your client and with the local authority? Well, firstly, let me just agree with Andrew what he said. And I'm glad he said it and not me, because it has a lot more weight coming from someone with his um, level of expertise and experience um, that, you know, nothing we build is yet truly sustainable. We're moving in the right direction, but we're a long way away from where we shouldn't really be allowed to claim that any project we've done is sustainable design. And the way we discuss this with clients, it kind of depends on where the project is to some extent. You know, as Andrew said, London has some policies like the open greening factor, which make these conversations easier. We've now got the biodiversity net gain legislation, which has made things much, much easier. You know, it used to be just five or six years ago, you had to spend time trying to convince a client to increase the biodiversity on, on site. Now you don't have to do it. Now, you know, it's, it's a great pleasure being at uh, team meetings and even without speaking a word, someone else on the team who's not a landscape architect has brought up biodiversity net care and how it needs to be addressed. So, you know, it saves us time, it saves us stress and the right decision gets made without too much effort. In terms of carbon emissions, we don't have similar legislation. And I think 
that is the next step. Some point legislation needs to come in uh, for embodied energy and operational energy, which includes the embodied energy and operational energy of landscapes and instructs developers um, and forces them to either offset it or minimize it or both. And that will make our jobs even easier. What, what kind of conversations do you think that landscape architects ought to be having about these topics uh, just within, within the industry? Andrew? We, and as grant associates, we're, we're having a lot more sort of internal conversations about what do we do as a practice? What should we be really sort of adhering to? So I think there are a number of things. One is, one is a, a, we should be all adopting a sort of a process which checks our designs against a certain list of criteria. And whether that's carbon or whether it's biodiversity, but uh, recently we've we've been sort of exploring building with nature as an assessment tool. Uh, we've got a couple of people in the office who've become official assessors or any for the building with nature. But that gives you a framework, which is the spectrum of landscape, which is water, biodiversity, soils, all those sort of aspects, which is a really useful tool. I think the idea of materials, which this whole sort of article was about would be really good to sort of home in on because there's so many materials that we should not be using at all, shouldn't even be on the sort of <laughs> starting point. So one of the things that uh, we're trying to do is try and sort of do an audit of materials and, and what, are the, what are the elements that we think we should be using more of um, as, we, as we move towards a more uh, resilient sort of process. And, and certainly the Superbloom was one of those projects where we you know, materials that we use with sort of willow, woven willow, simple gravel materials um, to to just create a beautiful, rich landscape. Um, but he wasn't using concrete or sort of expressive steel and those sort of things that, that is easy to sort of fall into the trap of doing that. Thank you. So materials, Jay, what, what conversations do you think the profession should be having at the moment? Well, I think the profession needs a lot of support and information from both industry and academia. If we are armed with the right information in terms of uh, embodied carbon, in terms of operational energy requirements in irrigation, et cetera, et cetera, only then can we advise our clients about what the most sustainable way of building is. Until then, we're kind of, uh, kind of just shooting in the dark. Like everybody has their own ideas of what should be prioritized in terms of materials. And there is a trade-off between robustness and uh, low embodied energy. Sometimes so some landscape optics might think that if this uh, space or this design lasts 50, 60, 70 years, it's done its job. So this it's not a big deal that it has so much embodied uh, carbon. Whereas other landscape optics might decide it's probably not going to last 50, 60, 70 years. Someone's going to come along and want to change everything in 20 years. So we might as well have a low embodied carbon project, which is easy to change. Right Now, again, the Superbloom is, uh, is a really good example of a landscape that is, from the sounds of it, very, very low embodied energy. Well, I think that's a very interesting point at which to end this conversation. Um, the Landscape Institute will be producing a new publication specifically looking at embodied carbon that continues uh, some of this discussion. But I think, as Jay, as you have said, there's clearly a lot of 
need for more academic guidance as well as an interpretation of the day-to-day work that members of the Landscape Institute are doing at the moment. Thank you very much indeed uh, for being here this morning. The current edition of Landscape Material Matters is available now to download from the Landscape Institute website and I look forward to speaking again with you in four weeks time. Thank you very much.